Blog Talk Radio. From Lives in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to help you Make things better. Hello there. Welcome to the program. Uh, we do this every week, uh, not during the summer, and summer's coming up. Um, but we do this every week so that people can uh, get their questions answered, get their uh, well, uh, get some input on what's going on with their behaviorally challenging child get better at doing plan B. So here we are once again, uh, 45 minutes of information on collaborative problem solving. I've got some uh, email stacked up that uh, we can definitely talk about today, uh, but I want to give that call-in number again because today would be a very good day to call in. Next week is our parents' panel, which is uh, not a terrible day to call in, but not necessarily the ideal day to call in. We're actually going to have a special guest on the Monday after that, and um, we'll make it a surprise guest, um, but on a topic that is extremely important in the lives of behaviorally challenging kids. And then we only have a few other, few, few more programs left before um, we take June, July, and August off for the summer. And yes, I do know, behaviorally challenging kids don't take the summer off from being behaviorally challenging, but... Um, Summertime tends to be the time where I uh, get books written and um, do the advanced trainings that I do every summer, and um, well, we do the radio program nine months out of the year. So once again, that call-in number, 347-994-2981. Once again, today would be an outstanding day to call in, but I do have quite a few email to get through, so if we don't get any callers today... By golly, we still have some important things to talk about. Here's an email. Dr. Green, I have a 7-year-old daughter who is having behavioral challenges. I think the stress of her mom and my getting divorced has created a lot of the problems. My question is, how can a single parent deal with a child who is explosive if the other parent is practicing some forms of parental alienation or subtle sabotage behaviors when they have the child? This week I've had my child all week for spring break and I have had no severe outbursts. And as the week goes on, it only gets better and I have successfully used collaborative problem solving and done a lot of basket. Plan B, which I'm pleased to say has been 90% effective. I'll take 90% effective. Um, How can I learn more? Well, let me go back to the beginning um, of your email. 
it certainly does uh, well number one uh, a child who's gone through a divorce can you can see behaviors get worse in a child who's gone through a divorce and so you would know better whether your child was behaviorally challenging before the divorce or if the divorce is when she became behaviorally challenging you'd know better whether she was behaviorally challenging before the divorce and the divorce made things worse. You'd know better whether she was behaviorally challenging before the divorce and because of the circumstances of the divorce it became much more difficult for you and her mother to collaborate on parenting. So, I'm not sure I would you'd know better. Just because there was a divorce doesn't mean that the divorce was the cause of your daughter's behavior problems, but it's the it's the rest that is intriguing me. Um you're saying that her mother, I guess, is um practicing forms of parental alienation or subtle Sabotage. Now, the problem is you haven't gone into detail about that, so I don't know what you mean. And um, I'm, I'm delighted that you and your daughter had a great week during spring break. I don't know if that means that you're doing it exactly right. You're not saying that. And your prior significant other is doing it all wrong. I don't know if that's what that means. I do know that even though you two are no longer together, there's a major premium on being able to collaborate well for the sake of your daughter. And that um, it would be good if I knew what you meant by parental alienation and subtle sabotage behaviors. Are those things that your ex-significant other is saying to your daughter about you? Are what you are, is what you're really referring to there a uh, difference of opinion about whether to do Plan B or Plan A? These are many of the things that come up. And by the way, they don't just come up when parents split up. They come up when parents are still together. Sometimes we put a lot of eggs in the divorce basket when, in fact, a lot of the things I see in divorced families are just as typical of intact families. So, um, well, I don't have enough details to answer your question in a really specific way, but um, I do hope Plan B can help you not only collaborate better with your daughter, but also can help you collaborate better with your daughter's other parent. But do feel free to call into the program to let me know what you're referring to when you say parental alienation or subtle sabotage behaviors. That that doesn't sound good. Sounds like a problem that needs to be solved. I doubt, as I always do, that Plan A is going to get the job done. 
you and your daughter's other parent are going to have much more success using plan B to get the job done, if that's possible. And that, I think, is probably the hardest part of going through a divorce. It can, because of all of the ill will and bad feelings and whatever else went along with the divorce, make it harder for parents who are no longer together to collaborate with each other. I'm just saying, I see that in parents who are still together. So, that's the best I can do on that one, given the information that I have. All right, let's move on to another one. Uh, Hi, Ross. First of all, I uh, participated in one of your workshops earlier this year in Denmark. So, this is an email from Denmark. Isn't that cool? And it was one of the best things I've ever done. That's very nice of you to say. Uh, reading your books and learning about the humanity involved has inspired me so much, and I'm hoping and thinking that it rubs off on my wonderful colleagues. Though I do have one question that I'm hoping you can help me with. When you talk about skills, is it in a situational way, like I'd like to think, or do you think that when you have a skill, you have it in all situations? Hoping I'm making myself clear, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answer, and... The answer is what you're about to hear. I think it can break either way. Um, I think that let's take an example. There are some people who are very gifted athletes. And by golly, they are good in practically every sport they pick up. Um, My 11-year-old son is a pretty gifted athlete. He has been rather successful at every sport he's tried. He hasn't liked every sport he's tried. He's found some of them to be boring and those he was decent at but chose not to participate in them. One thing I'll say about my son is that, well, and those of you who are hockey parents know this already, hockey ruins you for almost all other sports. My son would be the first to tell you. Nothing is as exciting or as fast, or as challenging as hockey. So, but he's a he's a decent athlete, athlete across the board. I'm trying to think of any sport he's tried. As, I don't know if he's tried bowling, but he, he'd probably be good at that too. It's kind of irritating that the kid just goes into a sport and he's good at it. So yeah, it can be global. Uh, then then there are athletes like me. There were some sports that I was half decent at. There were some sports that I wasn't really very good at at all. Um, Back in the day, I like to think I was a decent football player, basketball player, not really, baseball player, I guess. I was fast. If if something involved speed, maybe. Not fast anymore. Um, And then there were other sports. Tennis would be a good example of that that, um, you know what, I just, it didn't click. All right, so my athletic skills are uneven. Now, now let's go to some of the skills on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. Uh, Expressing one's needs, thoughts, in words. Well, um, 
I think that can be situational. I think that there are going to be, once again, kids who are really good at that across the board and kids who, under specific conditions, are less fluent, less able to express themselves. Uh, Let's take me as as an example once again. You get me talking about collaborative problem-solving, I'm pretty darn fluent. Number one, I do it a lot, and number two, I think about it a lot. Um, I've got the words. I deal with it frequently. Something I do less frequently, and this comes up especially when I'm doing grand rounds at hospitals, is is when I have to talk about data, I've got to put my scientist hat back on, and I can do it. I still think there's many ways in which I think like a scientist, even when I'm not talking about data, but ask me to talk about data, and I become a little less fluent, not a complete bomb, but nowhere nearly as fluent as I would be if I was talking just generically about collaborative problem solving. That's because I don't think about data all the time. I don't deal with data a good part of the time. And I'm not in front of people speaking about data most of the time. Most people, quite frankly, just want to hear about how you use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and how you do plan B, and they want my help helping them do it better. So to tell you the truth, I would be more inclined to think about lagging skills situationally. You're going to come across kids who are lacking a particular skill cross-situationally, and you're going to come across kids who are lacking a particular skill in very specific situations. Here's the good news. Either way, you still have highly specific unsolved problems to identify so that you know what problems you're trying to solve with the kid. As I just explained to some wonderful educators in Ontario, um, you're really not usually working on the lagging skills directly, so while it's good to be talking about lagging skills so as to get the right lenses on, it is even more important to be talking about the unsolved problems that are associated with those lagging skills so that you know what problems you're going to try to solve collaboratively with the child. So, um, let's see, it's already 5.15 in the afternoon in Denmark. My bet is that you're not listening to the program live in Denmark, but if you are, I hope that that uh, clarified your question, and I hope that if you listen to the archived version that you are happy that uh, we got to your question this week. We're going to get to a bunch this week. Let me give you that call-in number again, 617, no, 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 that's not the call-in number, 347-994-2981. We may not get any callers today. That sometimes happens. Here's another question. Nope, not quite. Here's another question. We have a seven-year-old son who is in the first grade writing to you in hopes of getting some information, confirmation, and ultimately resolution to an ongoing battle between our family and those other adults that our son deals with on a daily basis. We've had opinions from preschool teachers, caregivers, current teachers, who always say that there is something wrong with our son. We've had over five different developmental evaluations, three behavior evaluations, hearing speech evaluations, every time someone offers an opinion that something is wrong, 
we get the results that ultimately show there is nothing wrong, but rather the opposite. Uh, our son is ahead of his peers in math and is reading at a second or third grade level. Where he's having issues is now emotionally slash behaviorally. He's very hard at himself, quite a perfectionist. He feels it is not okay to make a mistake. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? That's why I was hesitating on reading this. I apologize. Uh, we've done this one already. Hang on here. I apologize for the delay. Here's the one that I was going to answer. Uh, hello, my daughter is seven years old, diagnosed with autism and ADHD. She's verbal, but more to describe what she sees than what she feels. I did the assessment of lagging skills. She is uh, lacking almost all of the skills. There are some problems that I know are recurrent, for example, homework. But I'm having trouble finding a way with words, pictures, examples to help her explain to me why. And many of her outbursts are out of nowhere. Often I know it's sensory, but it doesn't happen in a routine way. We can be at the park and a huge truck will pass and there's no problem. Then a kid will pass by her and sings and she will snap. Next week, the kid can sing with no problem, but she will snap at the truck. And our life is an upside-down about everything like that. Three-fourths of the time, it's not predictable because her moods vary each minute. What she can tolerate one hour can be a challenge the next hour. She can laugh and have fun with something one day and yell because it bothers her the next day. Same situation, same time, same people, same everything. So although I try to do proactive plan B, Emergency plan B is hard because she cannot always explain in the heat of the moment why she feels a certain way. Let me just read through this. I wonder if you have any idea how I could manage to work plan B with her. All right. There's uh, two things you're getting a little bit hung up on, so let's talk about them. Thing number one. Just because a particular unsolved problem doesn't set in motion a challenging episode on Tuesday and does on Wednesday doesn't mean it's unpredictable. It's actually predictable. We know, but it depends on your definition of predictable. We know that if a truck goes by, there is a heightened potential for your daughter to become agitated because it's bothering her. We don't know that it will happen every single time, but I don't come across many unsolved problems that set in motion challenging behavior every single time. All I'm looking for is unsolved problems that heighten the likelihood of a challenging episode. And so now... Because it doesn't have to set in motion a challenging episode 100% of the time, now we can return to your question and see that there are many unsolved problems that are heightening the likelihood 
of a challenging episode, and that is actually our litmus test. Homework. Now, I'd want to be more specific about that. A kid passing by and singing at the park. A truck going by in the park. Those all, according to your message, I'm reading through it again, um, heighten the likelihood of a challenging episode, and so all of those qualify as an unsolved problem. They are highly predictable. They are a little unpredictable as it relates to the specific occasion on which they're going to set in motion a challenging episode, but besides that, they're highly predictable. They heighten the likelihood of an incompatible of a challenging episode. They count. Now you've given us some other ones. You've potentially got some sensory stuff going on. Um, so now that's that's issue number one: is does an unsolved problem have to set in motion a challenging episode every single time to count? Now you know the answer is no. It just needs to heighten the likelihood of a challenging episode to count. Now, you're having trouble doing plan B with her. And yes, I agree that with a child who is um, having difficulty using words, and you're telling me that she's better at feeling words at the moment than um, telling us what her concern or perspective is. Now, you've got a few different options. Um, uh, A lot of these speech and language therapists that I know use pictures to help kids who don't have the words to articulate their concerns at least point to pictures that come close. And this is where things like Google Images and other apps can come in very handy. Um, You may only need one word from uh, your daughter to home in on what her concern or perspective is on a particular unsolved problem. You could create a menu of pictures um, that your daughter could just point to, um, things not going the way she thought they would, um, something's the matter, Um, that's not what I thought was going to happen. I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. These are things that if we put a little effort in, um, we can depict in pictures, and then kids who don't have the communication, the verbal communication skills to tell us what their concerns are can point to what their concerns are. And the good news is speech and language therapists do this all the time. The only difference is now you're doing it on a highly specialized piece of information. What the unsolved problem is, that can be depicted in pictures, hungry, cold, thirsty, confused, don't know what to do. All can be depicted in pictures. That's the cool part. Um, 
the kids' concerns about those unsolved problems. That can be depicted in pictures. Potential solutions to an unsolved problem. Do it a different way. Ask for help. Those can be depicted in pictures. And here's the cool part. Um, In the kids that I've done this with, we we create something of a problem-solving binder. And we have just a binder with pictures in it. And by the way, I haven't just done this with kids who are lacking language processing and communication skills. I've done it with kids who had language processing and communication skills, but who it seemed would benefit greatly by having a binder that they could refer to for ideas about solutions that were depicted in pictures. You know, we can be as creative as we want here, but in the case of kids who are having trouble using words to describe those things, uh, a problem-solving binder is actually a pretty cool way to go. But it's helping the child communicate, just not with words, with pictures. Now, here's the other good news. Sometimes coming up with the unsolved problems that are setting in motion challenging episodes, sometimes um, in kids who can't tell us what those unsolved problems are, now adults need to become really good observers. And here's the neat part. Our uh, person who asked these questions is a really good observer. She's noticed without uh, her daughter telling her that homework is a problem. Of all the things I've often said is wonderful about behaviorally challenging kids, one of the wonderful things about behaviorally challenging kids is that they don't usually keep it a secret that they have an unsolved problem. You know. And that's true most of the time. Especially the explosive variety. You know. So all you've really got to do is take a look at what they're exploding about and you have an unsolved problem. In a kid who can't tell you what it's about, you'll have to notice what it is that they're getting agitated about. You could keep a log about this, what it is that they're balking at doing. Um, You're coming up with the list of unsolved problems. They're not really assisting in the generation of that list, but here's the interesting part. If you're using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems... You're kind of doing that anyways. You've noticed homework, um, a truck passing by, a kid singing. You've noticed what the unsolved problems are. He's got three to work on right there. You could you could start with those three. And use pictures to find out what it is that's bothering your daughter, about those things. Um, You'd probably want a picture depicting loud noises. I think that creativity is probably the key word here. And trying, if your daughter can give you no information whatsoever to use your powers of observation to figure out what it could be. Still, of course, awaiting verification from your daughter, but what it could be. Hope that answers the question. Let's move on to one more. 
Um, I want to expose my 17-year-old son to collaborative problem-solving. I'm studying collaborative problem-solving myself, but the problem is that he needs to receive some training on his end, and right now it's a one-sided effort and completely ineffective because I need a moderator to make this possible. Your thoughts? Interesting. This is, um, of course, it, I, I'm, I'm not wanting to read too much into your uh, message, but uh, in some kids, as the parents start learning about collaborative problem solving and the parents try to approach things differently, the kid is slow to recognize that the parent is doing things differently and is still responding to the parent as if the parent is... Uh, still doing a lot of plan A. And that can be extremely discouraging to uh, a parent who's, you know, here's the setup. You're not good at plan B yet. You're just getting your feet wet, and you've got a kid who's still responding to you as if you're doing plan A. So let there be no doubt, you are not being rewarded for your efforts. Now, I guess the question is, uh, I don't know if that means your son who is... 17 needs training per se but in some instances the relationship is so far gone that you do need a third party to get the ball rolling on communicating talking being in the same room together that's where a uh, mental health professional who has some knowledge of collaborative problem solving could come in handy. Although I was listening to Plan B on a recording yesterday of a uh, principal of an elementary school doing Plan B with a kid about a problem that was going on at home at the request of the parent. So I don't know if we should limit our helping discussions to mental health professionals. As I've been saying in my talks these days, Who's on the hook for helping these kids? Do you need letters after your last name that indicate that you are qualified to help identify lagging skills and unsolved problems and solve problems with behaviorally challenging kids? Who's qualified to do that? Everybody and anybody. No letters after your name required. You may need a third party. And I find myself being an especially crucial third party in the families that I work with when they can't even sit in the same room together. When even the slightest exchange of words prompts one or both families to just lose it when it looks like parent and child have developed a severe allergy to one another. And just can't even look at each other or be in the same room together. Now, I will say this. Um, there are some therapists who think it's a good idea to, family therapists who think it's a good idea to always have all the family members in the room at the same time. And that's a particular way of doing family therapy. It's not the way I do family therapy because I think that some people aren't ready to be in the same room together. 
sometimes as a clinician I have to play the role of mediator, moderator. I have to do shuttle diplomacy, as we might call it, so that um, so as to set the stage for different parties to be able to talk to each other. And um, I put them in the same room together when I think they're ready. Sometimes that takes a little while. So in those instances, absolutely, you need a uh, third party to uh, help out. Because you can't do shuttle diplomacy with the person who you're having trouble talking to. That's hard to do. You need a third party. That's where a mental health professional or other party who has some familiarity in collaborative problem solving can come in handy. Now, the good news is, geez, that could be a family member, too. Not an easy role to play, but it could be a family member. I find that in many families, there's one party in particular, one adult in particular, who seems to have a natural ability to do plan B, or at least is getting better at it quicker than the other party. And though it's going to be rough sledding, sometimes that adult can get the ball rolling, and sometimes that adult can serve as a mediator between child and adult who is coming along less quickly in the collaborative problem-solving department. So I'm not picky about who that person is either. I just know that so long as plan A is the uh, primary way in which we're trying to solve problems with each other, this is not likely to be pretty, and problems will remain unsolved and interactions will continue to remain adversarial. And that's a shame. Uh, So, whether it's training your 17-year-old son needs, let's face it, when you're doing Plan B together, both parties are being trained. I'm going to interpret your message to mean that your son won't even talk to you right now. And you need a third party just to get you guys communicating with each other again, just to get the ball rolling again. And that's a very good reason to engage a third party. Now, as I teach the third parties who I work with, the clinicians who I train to do collaborative problem solving, um, third parties are neutral. In collaborative problem solving, the third party is neutral. They are on no one's side. They are on everyone's side. Third parties are neutral. A lot of parents come into treatment thinking that they will be able to persuade the clinician to take their side. What the clinician will do is try to clarify their concerns and treat those concerns as legitimate. But that's not taking sides because the clinician is going to be doing the exact same thing with the child. The clinician is on nobody's side. The clinician is on everybody's side. That's a good way to solve problems collaboratively, and that's a great role for a problem-solving facilitator, a neutral third party to play. 
but parents do come into treatment feeling like they can that they're going to have an ally and many people do therapy that way uh the in collaborative problem solving the third party is allied with everybody and allied with nobody I think we'll call this program today, Whose Side Are You On? In collaborative problem solving, now you know the answer. By the way, what's the definition of a good solution? In collaborative problem solving, a good solution addresses the concerns of both parties. So both parties win. Collaborative problem solving is a win-win proposition. It's not about therapists taking side or about power or about... The therapist throwing their weight between uh, uh, on the side of one party or the other so as to get a particular problem solved, one of the explicit assumptions of collaborative problem solving is that both parties have legitimate concerns. Another explicit assumption of collaborative problem solving is that one party's concerns do not trump the concerns of the other. And one of the uh, most important principles in being a... uh, objective third party is it's not taking anybody's side you're not throwing your weight behind anybody or anything except getting this problem solved in a way that is realistic and mutually satisfactory and making sure the concerns of both parties are well understood and that both parties agree that the other party's concerns are legitimate Neutral third party, um, all for it. Who could that be? That could be lots of different people. Do you need a clinician who is well-versed in collaborative problem solving? Uh, In some families, I would say maybe, especially the ones that um, are extremely volatile and extremely reactive and out of control and unsafe. There you're looking for somebody who uh, knows what they're doing and has some experience in working with families that are volatile and reactive and unsafe and unstable. But generally speaking, that objective third party, that problem-solving facilitator, facilitator. generally speaking, the word is anyone. Well, we made it through most of the program today without any callers, Um And unfortunately, uh, those are all of the emails I queued up. Clearly, I screwed up on a few of the emails that I queued up, but uh, those are all the emails I queued up for discussion today. So I think I'm going to end the program just a little bit early today. You know we've got the parents panel next week and the entire month of May to answer any other questions you have about the model before we take our summer break. Thanks for listening in today. Talk to you next week.